We read the word of the Lord this morning, congregation, as we find it in the book of Revelation. And to read Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, and read through verse 7 of chapter 2. Our focus will be on Revelation 2, 1 to 7, the first of our Lord's seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Before we read the word of the Lord and listen to its teaching, let's seek the Lord's blessing in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are a God unlike the idols of the nations who speaks. May we be a people who, when you speak, listen. Give us what we need this morning as we read your word. Give us understanding and illumine our minds so as to see clearly what your word is teaching and also impress and seal upon our hearts the word that you have spoken by your spirit that we may be built up together and encouraged but also called and summoned to live out of the riches of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We read the word of the Lord as we find it in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard before me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May the Lord grant his blessing to our reading and hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you this morning as a courier, as one who bears a letter, not a letter that I wrote, not a letter that you wrote, but a letter written by the Lord Jesus Christ who loves and cares for his church enough to speak to them. You know, of course, that the book of Revelation, from which we oftentimes shy away because we're a little worried that we won't be able to sort it out in terms of all of the visions and the symbolism of the book, the book of Revelation is just that, a book that opens up to us the word of the Lord for his church. It's not accidental that there are exactly seven letters. We're looking at the first one together this morning. You might ask, well, why seven? Why not six? Why not three? Well, in the book of Revelations, numbers count. They have significance, and even you boys and girls know that the Lord God in the space of seven days, six days, creating the seventh day, he rested. It was finished. So these are representative letters. They're letters that were given to churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century while John was on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day in the Spirit, speaking to real churches. As a matter of fact, the sequence of the letters is the travel route that you would take as a mail carrier, a courier, just to the north, the first great city, the greatest city of Asia Minor is Ephesus, 60-some miles. And if you were a circuit-riding courier, you would go from there to the next church and then come back whence you came. Now, the thing about these letters is they're not only from Christ in the Spirit, all of them end with the expression, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. These are letters from the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, seating at God's right hand, the Son of Man who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is not a letter from someone to whom we need not give our attention. This is a letter from one whose voice is, we're told, says John, when he saw him and heard his voice, is like the roaring of mighty waters, which is an allusion to the language used in the prophecy of Ezekiel for when God speaks. 
Now, you live in Niagara Peninsula, so you've heard the roar of mighty waters if you've been to the great Niagara Falls. The Canadian side is bigger and better than the American, I shall acknowledge. But you tremble if you're paying attention. The ground underneath your feet rumbles. There's something awe, properly speaking, inspiring about those great falls. Well, when the people of God come together on the Lord's Day, you should always anticipate not hearing the voice of whomever is the pastor who is but a treasure or a a jar of clay, but the treasure of the word that Christ chooses to speak to his church. And so we're going to look at this first letter that the Lord speaks to the church in Ephesus and also to us regarding the challenges and the circumstances that we face as God's people by the good shepherd who says to us in John 10, when his sheep hear his voice, they follow after him. And he knows them all by name. Now, these letters are not carelessly written. We live in an age of carelessness when we communicate with each other. We send off these uh, quick little tweets or short emails, badly spelled and without the appropriate grammar often, uh, little careless quick words that are often largely empty, devoid of anything significant. Our Lord does not craft his letters when he writes to his church carelessly. In every instance, he begins by identifying who it is who has authored the letter. And so we'll start there this morning. How does he identify himself? Because in every instance, how he identifies himself has much to do with what he will say to the church. So we'll start there. Who authored this letter? Secondly, as is often the case, he begins thereafter with a word of commendation. He praises the church for the work of God's Spirit among them. Not in every case. There's at least one letter where it apparently couldn't be found out that there was anything to say good about the church. Now, in this letter, he begins with a wonderful commendation. And so that'll be the second thing. The third thing is he oftentimes expresses a word of concern. Things are not as they ought to be among the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a particular place. That's the third thing. And then we'll lastly conclude, as all of the letters conclude, with a word of encouragement, a promise that should stimulate by the Spirit the people of God to give heed and do even as the Lord has summoned them by means of the letter he writes to them. First of all, how does the Lord identify himself? Who is the author of this letter? We're told to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. We're already told in chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ has the angels in his hands. And who are the angels? They're the messengers. They're the ones who carry the letter and communicate. I think by implication you could argue even the great Dutch theologian Herman Bovink argues this, that 
these angels are ultimately, when the rubber hits the road, the courier in the local congregation, namely your pastor. It's his assignment to give the letter to you, to explain it, to communicate it, add nothing to it, subtract nothing from it, and speak not in his own name, but in the name of the one who gave him the letter. And it's remarkable that those pastor messenger angels are by the Lord said to be firmly gripped in his right hand. But he's writing to a church, and they're called lampstands. And so he says, The words of him who holds the seven stars, the seven angels, the messengers, the couriers of my word in his right hand, who walks among... In the opening chapter, he stands among, but here he is said to dwell with and walk among and be familiar with, knowing, you might say, to use the idiom, the congregation to whom he speaks, as any good pastor should, like the back of his hand. I know you. That's how they all start. We'll see it in a moment. Because I walk among you. He knows you better than the elders know you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows exactly the word in season that the church needs to hear. And so let him who hears, let him have the ears with which to hear what the Spirit says to the church. So the author of this letter is the one who has his word as it is brought to the church, firmly in his grip, and he walks among and knows and cares about the circumstances of churches comprised of people for whom he shed his own precious blood, who are dear to him. Dear enough to him that he's willing to rebuke them if need be. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. He's no flatterer. He loves his church perfectly, and so he speaks the truth in love, as ought we. Now, that's the author. What is it that he commends the church of Ephesus for? He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. That's a remarkable, rather rich, and surely the church in Ephesus uh, rejoiced to hear the word of commendation. You're working hard. The word toil there is you're hard at work toiling, not growing weary in well-doing. I wonder whether that would be said and reported about the church here, Wellinport United Reformed Church. When we have work to do, there are always more than enough workers. When there's a task to which we need to lend a hand, there are many who are ready to sign up. You're known for, this is not a place lacking vitality, energy, ambition, and a readiness not to serve, 
to be served, rather, but to serve, even as our Lord came not to be served, but to give himself a ransom for many. This was a congregation where the members understood what Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are many members in the one body of Christ, each and every one gifted for service to one another, that the whole body might be built up and enriched. I know your works, your hard toil, and your patient endurance. It's the same expression that you have in the first chapter where we're told that John was on the Isle of Patmos, a little island still there, a rocky place, not very attractive, a prison house for those whom the Roman civil magistrate did not approve of. And John says that while he was in the spirit on the Isle of Patmos, he was there imprisoned for the sake of the testimony of Jesus, the Word of God, and with patient endurance. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the church in Ephesus. The people, it was a great city, 250,000 thereabouts at the time of the writing of this letter. The principal governing city under Rome, the Roman authorities, of the Roman Empire. And at the center of the city, it was a city, by the way, known for its loyalty to the emperor, who made boast that he was Curios, Lord, even that he was God, Dea Roma, the goddess Rome was embodied in his person. But in the middle of the city of Ephesus was a great, one of the seven wonders of the ancient Roman, Greco-Roman world, the great temple to the goddess of the Ephesians, Artemis, known by the Romans as the goddess Diana. Now here's a question for the young people. It's really a question for all of us. You recall What happened when the Apostle Paul, as well as others, Alexander and others, came on Paul's missionary journey to Asia, Asia Minor, and in particular, preached the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesus? Well, it caused a riot because he was preaching and teaching that not Caesar... But the Lord Jesus Christ alone is kurios. And him, him alone is owed that obedience and loyalty and devotion that God's people give to no other. Certainly not to the pretensions of the proud, mighty emperors, Caesars, seated in Rome. But it was worse than that. The great temple that was built in the center of the city, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was a centerpiece of the economy in Ephesus. And why was there a riot when Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Demetrius, who was making little silver models of the goddess Diana and of her great temple, which was some 440 feet 
high, 220-some feet wide, and they were selling because people would come from throughout the Greco-Roman world to Ephesus to worship the gods, to pay homage to Caesar. And Demetrius, together with the other silversmiths in the city, were worried that they would be put out of business if they follow after this preaching of the Apostle Paul and the teachings concerning there is but one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is but one who is ultimately king and worthy of our devotion and undivided loyalty. He'll put us out of business. And the patient endurance of God's church, Christ's church in Ephesus, quite likely included the boycotting of their businesses. No selling of your wares in the public square. You Christians who do not do homage to Caesar, who say, He alone, Jesus Christ, is Lord, you're not going to be party to or allowed to participate in the affairs of our city economically. Now, that may be very far removed from what you and I, what we often in our circumstance, though sometimes we think we're increasingly under pressure and uh, looked upon with disrespect in a secular culture that doesn't have interest in the things of Christ and of his kingdom. And there's no doubt truth in that. But this church is being commended not only because it was still hardworking, it was still... um, with patient endurance, suffering for Christ's sake, for the sake of his coming kingdom. They were not willing to compromise, to offer sacrifices to the God, pretended God Caesar, to swear allegiance and to worship at Diana's temple, And as a consequence, much like the church to which the book of Hebrews is written, they, because they knew they had a treasure in a new and better country that was given them and promised them in Christ, suffered the dispossession of all that which was theirs in this world's goods in in order not to lose that inheritance imperishable, kept for them in heaven, and they for it. But there's one other thing it says, our Lord says to this church by way of extraordinary commendation. I know your hard work. I know your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, after chapter 19, you have this account in chapter 20, of how Paul called the elders of the church, the same church to which our Lord is here writing, together at Miletus, a seaport, a distance removed from the city of Ephesus, inland, in order to preach his farewell sermon to them. You can read that sermon in Acts chapter 20 to the elders. And he warns the elders that there will come among them wolves in sheep's clothing 
who will say and profess themselves to be speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But the word they will speak is not a word consistent with the word spoken through those whom Christ appointed as apostles upon whose teaching and preaching the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be built. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church Christ is building of which he is a cornerstone has as its foundation the apostles and prophets. This was a church that was unyielding in respect to its adherence to the holy teaching of the Word of God. And that, too, is very instructive, congregation, even in our time. It's not often thought to be a commendable thing. Even sometimes within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we suffer the accusation, why are you so fussy, so unyielding, so resolute, testing everything to ensure that it accords with the word of Christ's apostles, the testimony of Jesus given to us in the word of God. Well, because Christ has spoken, and the sheep would hear only the voice of their good shepherd. They don't follow the voice of strangers. And the church in Ephesus, Christ says to them, Well done. You have been toiling, not growing weary. You have endured with patience the consequences of your devotion to me, your profession of my name, your testimony that I alone am Lord and Savior. And you are known, and I commend you for this, for your adherence, holding fast, testing everything by the standard of my holy word. Now, you would think that after all that had been said, the letter would conclude. But this is not a happy turn in the letter. It's an unhappy one. But I have this against you, says the Lord. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, which signifies the church's witness as a light among the nations in a world yet in darkness. Now, what does that mean? You are abandoning the love you had at first. Valiant they were for the truth, hard-working and patiently enduring for Christ's sake, but abandoning their first love, the love literally they had at first. Now, you might ask, is that their love for God, for his Christ? Is it their love for each other as members together of one household? brothers and sisters, belonging to the one sheepfold, purchased by the blood of Jesus? Or could it possibly be their love for those who are yet 
unreached by the gospel. And that's why he says, your witness will no longer shine brightly in the vicinity of the church in Ephesus. And if you were to read commentators on this particular letter, you'd find that they land in all three places. But I would suggest to you that they're all correct. How can the love of God and devotion to Jesus Christ be among a people who show no love for each other? The Apostle John, the same John who in the Spirit carried and communicated this letter that Christ gave to him in the Spirit, says in his first epistle, how can the love of God abide in one? If you say you love God whom you've not seen, and yet that person next to you in the pew who bears his image, who is like you, precious to him, purchased by his blood, but you don't love your father, your mother, your brother, or your sister. You see, the second table of the law, love for your neighbor, arises out of the first table. They're not unrelated. If this brother, sister, who belongs with me to this congregation, is of no interest to me, disregarded and with disinterest, I view them do not care about them, pray for them, visit them, encourage them, come alongside them, look out for their interests before my own interest. How can the love of God abide in you? All your professed love for God is nothing but smoke. And this is the tragedy of the church in Ephesus. For all of those commendable things for which God in Christ praises them, it seems their love was growing cold. And that love likely included their love for those who were needing still to be called into their fellowship as they bore the light as a lampstand in the community and the place where Christ had put them. Isn't it interesting that our Lord says in the great sermon he preached on the Mount of Olive in Matthew 24, he says, The love of many will grow cold, but this gospel of the kingdom must pre be preached to the end of the world. Now you know, congregation, when you have a guest preacher uh, sometimes you might think, well, he selects a text because he thinks you're in particular need of it. Well, no, I didn't do that. I don't know you. Christ alone knows you. It could be that in your case, I hope it is, I trust it is, that this word of concern is not necessarily so much a word in season, but I think it's ultimately a word in season for any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this letter is included among the seven. It's worthy that we should ask ourselves in Wellinport, are we a church that loves the Word of God, but loves the God and His Christ who gave us this Word? 
and out of the awareness of his rich mercy and abounding love toward us. We find ourselves stimulated to live together as a community that cares each one. No one is left behind or forgotten. If they wander away, it's a matter of indifference to us. Now let me conclude with this as our Lord concludes the letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he holds out an extraordinary promise. If you listen by the Spirit, to the Spirit, then I say to you, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. About which we find at the end of the book of Revelation much more in the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which is paradise regained. Life in communion with God in the presence of God without end. That which was promised us in Adam, but was forfeited us by his terrible sin, original as well as ours, actual. That's why in Revelation 3, or I should say Genesis 3, verse 24, you have that posting of the angels before entrance east of Eden with flaming swords forbidding access to the tree of life, which if they eat of it, they should live, says God, forever. Here we have in Christ the promise that those who are Christ's and by the Spirit persevere as a congregation in hearing his word, no greater promise could ever be made. Life abundant in God's presence, together with all those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who belong to the worldwide family which is Christ's church, in the new order of things, where there is no more night, no more darkness, no more pain, no more tears, just joy, blessedness, true and abiding, unbreakable communion with the God of our salvation and with the Lamb who was slain and with all who have gone before us and all who perhaps will come after us in the holy new Jerusalem, the new and better country to which God's people are headed on pilgrimage. Let him who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We do pray that the same Spirit from Christ who gave to the Apostle John this letter and also to us would give us the ears to hear his word, that we would take it to heart, that we would meditate upon it, that we would test ourselves by the word that Christ speaks, that we would humble ourselves before you and listen attentively to the word you have spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.